Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 69 of the podcast, the topic is the future of quantum security. Our guest is Jaya Balu, Chief Information Security Officer at Avast Software. In this conversation, we talk about why it is so hard to eradicate cybersecurity challenges. We discuss the Internet Organized Crime Threat Assessment, IOCTA, and threats we are ready for and know about versus threats we don't know about and are not ready for. We look at the quantum market players, the challenges, and the applications. What quantum security challenges do you worry about in the next decade? The story of Alice, Bob, and the ex-girlfriend Eve illustrates quantum security and how to teach quantum computing to a new generation of engineers. Jaya, how are you today? Oh, very good, Trond. How are you? I'm fantastic. Let's um, let's go uh, right on to to quantum security. I'm I'm fascinated by your background, Jaya. You've been you know, in info security for a long time, you're now in a privileged position at the Singularity University and working with the European Commission. Uh, in other words, really, really embedded in the future of IT security. How did you get here? Yeah, that's a weird story, but I think I've been very lucky. Um, I started uh, very simply in a network operations center, moved to a much more hands-on position within an IT management team, and then started doing things around network architecture, uh, also not in one country, but in several others, designing and implementing different systems um, from broadband systems to um really like MPLS networks all the way up until like network management. And then finally, I was doing a project around lawful interception in the Czech Republic, just before the Czech Republic uh, had to have all of their stuff ready before they joined the EU. So this is all over the span of more than two decades. So it's not like I did this very quickly, but um, it gave me a chance to see both IT and security from a lot of different angles. Uh, which is really like building up, I think, a strong foundation for what I do today. Right. And for the benefit of of, of our listeners, we're gonna we're gonna slowly move into this because uh, it, it is a. I mean, for even for experts, right? It is a not only rapidly emerging field, but there are some things that we'll talk about today that really are. Well, I don't want to say they're speculative, but they they depend on a lot of things that aren't that are not even yet in research labs, to, to put it that way. So I wanted to, just for the benefit of everyone who's listening, can you, can you start by basically just taking us a little bit into this field of cryptography? So there is this notion of public key cryptography, and that in and of itself, you know, the field of cryptography is kind of complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, where are we now with cryptography, and why is kind of why is this discussion now coming up around cryptography as if as if we have to kind of re redo that discussion so public key cryptography it's something that a, a lot of us have at least learned as a term mm -hmm. what is that and why is cryptography even in the, just the existing environment why is that such a centerpiece of the discussion 
So most of us don't actually even know the term public cryptography, Trond. I think you are actually in the minority that even know that that term exists. So they know that when they send information across the internet uh, between trusted parties, that there's something that's happening that's making that information a secret. Um, and that mechanism, a few people recognize that as public key cryptography, but there's also just symmetric cryptography. And public key is often referred to as asymmetric cryptography because there is a set of keys rather than just a single key encrypting the entire session. So um, I think what's important to remember is that we've been using this stuff for a while and it's been used and a little bit taken for granted, but for everyone, except for the professionals that work in the area as something that you've just got, you know, it makes the stuff a secret. And whether that's your data that you store somewhere uh, for some purpose, or that's the data that you're transmitting uh, between particular parties like banking, or uh, when you're getting stuff online, or when you're checking out something. So we just kind of assume that it's going to be there and it's going to be okay. And the reason that it's coming back to the forefront now has a lot to do with the advances we're making in a different area around quantum computing. And the issue is that a lot of the cryptography we use today is based on a few difficult mathematical problems. Um, and the point is that the quantum computer is capable because of the way that it's been built and the types of problems that it can solve to solve the difficult math problems that our crypto is based on, which means that the mechanisms we've used to make our secret secret no longer works with an advancement of a sufficiently sized quantum computer. It breaks that crypto and makes it easy for anyone to read. This is true. So could we then just, before we move a little bit into this quantum space, could you, for us, if it's possible, to dig just one level deeper on cryptography? So I mentioned public key. There, there are three, like, I guess, algorithmic ways that this has been organized. There's something called integer factorization problem, and then there's the discrete logarithm problem, and then there's the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem. I bring up these three just because I want to make the point here that as we're transitioning that this is really quite a complicated matter even just before we get into quantum. Is there any way you can explain these three or 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 why there even are three different approaches to cryptography? And I'm sure there's more, but these are kind of common ones. So again, wh like how did they develop and and how long have they been around? Yeah. So again, like we uh, have these difficult math problems and these difficult math problems are if you uh, take prime numbers, very, very large prime numbers, and you multiply them together, we can do that operation in the way like that you multiply them together to get a product, right? We know how to do that. So Trond, if I gave you two numbers and you had to multiply them together, let's do it now. What is nine times eight? 72 usually. Yeah. So again, neither one of these are primes and 72 is also right. not a prime. But if I right. asked you, Tron, to give me all of the factors that we use to get to 72, you would say? Um, what would I say? Um, I would say I don't, I don't understand what you mean. Uh, the, the factors <laughs> of, uh, you mean? What are all the numbers you could multiply together to get to 72? Oh, I see. Uh, well, it's two different numbers, right? More than two. Maybe um, 
But this is actually a really good illustration of what uh, I mean. And the same way that we work is also how computers work. When we say nine times eight, to a human, it's easy to get to that product, 72. If we now try well, to- Well, I mean, that, you, I, I see the factors, right? right. So by, you, by twos and by fours and all that stuff. Uh, so yes, there's a n- number of, of ways to, to get. I, I, I get what you're saying. No, but- There's it's, a very it's, finite way though. No, right? uh, no. Um, th- what, sorry, the point that I'm trying to make is this is called a one-way problem. You know, it's, it's basically, this is uh, easy to solve in one direction and difficult to solve in the other direction. And this is actually a function within cryptography, which is that you have a lot of mathematical problems um, and, you know, the, the strength, if you will, of the cryptography we use depends on the difficulty of reversing this one-way function. So if we know, it, you know, something, a large prime times something, another large prime equals this product, we can do this mathematical operation in our current computers rather easily. But to reverse this one-way function, if we only have the product or the ciphertext, to then reverse it to try to figure out which are the keys that we've got, you know, when we when we got this, what are all the possible combinations of keys, that's really difficult for our current computers to solve. I understand. Okay. I see what this one-way function. And basically what we have with integer factorization is that a very smart individual called Peter Schor actually wrote an algorithm that will solve this integer factorization problem. So he'll find all of the factors that will be used to actually potentially calculate. So the algorithm is already available. Now we just need a quantum computer to run the algorithm on. So this was the MIT uh, mathematician, right? Uh, Peter Schor, yeah. So Schor, yeah. yeah. So um, so Schor's algorithm has been around for a while just waiting for a quantum computer of significant size, which is important and with enough qubits and processing power and no decoherence problems and blah, 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 with all of this good stuff to actually run the algorithm. Um, and that's that's one issue. The discrete log uh, issue is a, is a secondary problem. And uh, we actually have Grover's algorithm um, that will also help you with the discrete log Issues. It's also a, a, a different mathematical problem. Let me be very clear. Discrete log, I usually refer to it, or I don't usually refer, everyone refers to it as uh, clock arithmetic. So if you imagine that you have a dial of a clock and yeah. the function is that you have, you know, a, an amount of numbers on that clock and using a, a log uh, function, you can actually like calculate this but if you don't know all of these parameters if you don't know the formula on which it's based to if you only have the result again of that discrete log function it's impossible to reverse it the other way to figure out which components you used to get to that result and it's the same one-way function problem here as well and for that we can use uh, Grover's uh, search algorithm which will allow us to do this large search and uh, optimize it so you can try all of these multiple uh, paths to the solution at the same time Um, and with these two things you've actually significantly reduced your complexity that we currently have built in to our current cryptography and elliptic curves. I mean, we've been using elliptic curves for a while. We probably actually will use a different type of set of curves for when we have uh, a post quantum algorithmic set of cryptographic solutions. So I don't know how and in which form yet, but I think curves are going to be somehow back on the menu when we have our new set of solutions, even though the current set are jeopardized. Yeah. 
So the reason why I asked you <clears throat> to go into somewhat of a detail here is because I wanted to kind of get to what you, you've been talking to me earlier about uh, and, and which I was sort of preparing for. Why is it so hard to eradicate cybersecurity challenges is sort of my question. And I know you and I have been reading <clears throat> this new report, the Internet Organized Crime Threat Assessment, IOCTA, uh, that the EU, the Interpol report, that's that's now out. And, and that report really hammers down the point that we, we, we haven't solved, uh, you know, all of these problems yet. Why is that, Jaya? Why is it that cybersecurity companies are mushrooming? You know, every year I see a new company and, and you know, you guys are growing and growing. Why is this problem just escalating and we're not even at quantum yet? That has unfortunately nothing to do with quantum, but it has a lot more to do with our ability to um, understand and adapt to legacy problems we've created over time. We're good at creating problems. We're not so great at fixing them in time when we know we've got them. So part of it is we simply don't know that there are vulnerabilities out there. For example, if you read the IOCTA, the number one thing we saw is that ransomware is still the biggest single problem we've got. You know, And why do we have ransomware? Because we still have insecure systems. Why do we still have insecure systems? It's because users don't know and don't always have the resources to update or upgrade those systems. And we've got legacy hardware and software all over the place. Um, and the people uh, who operate or run or maintain these systems don't know that there's an issue, or even if they do know, are confronted by significant challenges to actually make the transition. So when we know about problems, we're not that good at reacting. And I think, and I'm, actually I'm not thinking, I'm, I'm afraid that this will spill over into all new technologies that we invent that even in the presence of a solution, our ability to transition to it is still remarkably slow. So we won't be able to embrace a post-quantum future in time to uh, solve all of our privacy and security challenges that will that'll come as a result of it. Jaya, the interesting thing is what you're describing to me is the same thing we're facing with uh, climate changes, the same thing we're facing with uh, Black Lives Matters. Is any problem that our civilization encounters, it seems like we cannot understand it, or COVID or whatever it is, it seems like we cannot understand it until, well, not, <clears throat> not until it's too late, but just until it's so pressing that it's starting to produce itself, you know, produce results initially, you know, essentially everywhere. Yeah. So there is some human logic whereby mm -hmm. like baseline preparation, just we're, we're not factoring that in. We're, we're not good at it. We're not incented, I guess. Yeah. I to think, do that. Unfortunately, uh, there's a saying in the Netherlands where I don't know why, but all the sayings always involve some form of animal life. This particular one is that, uh, you know, a calf moet eerst verdrinken, a calf, first has to drown before you do something about the rising water level. Um, so, and I find this to be true in, in multiple areas indeed. Can we move a little bit to talk about this uh, future market of quantum and then we can move into the security mm -hmm. part. I'm fascinated by the way that this market seems to be shaping up and you, you inform me whether I got this, uh, you know, uh, essentially right or not, but mm -hmm. th the way, it seems to be shaping up. There's kind of two giants that are really playing in the game, like trying to become the two giants, and that's Google and IBM. But in and around there, there is at least one startup, Rigetti, 
Um, then there's some Chinese companies, mainly Alibaba. And then you have some of the kind of the older U.S. giants like uh, Microsoft, Intel. And then you have this interesting player, Honeywell, coming a little bit from the sidelines. And, and those companies are trying to become all-in-one platform companies providing every possible you know, piece of the of the quantum pie. And then you obviously have a bunch of other players. Tell us a little bit what this market is going to contain. Because, and again, I'm just paraphrasing stuff that I've read, and I'm not mm-hmm. an expert on quantum computing, but you have clearly there's hardware, so there's some companies specializing on that. Then there's basically control systems in and around the hardware that are communicating and you know, running the hardware, but also sort of communicating with perhaps the software side. And then you have the services and, and software side of it. And, and those are kind of th- three fairly separate bits. And then, and then you have some specialty players that are kind of just trying to crack at smaller problems yeah. inside of this space. Am I, you know, and I, I'm basically just quoting from a BCG report that kind of mm-hmm. had this distinction, which I found pretty useful. Is that, a, is that a fair assessment of kind of at least what's playing out right now? I, I think that is very fair. I think what you're saying, you know, you have these big companies trying to do everything. Um, I think the, the issue is that if this is true, the way that you categorize it is absolutely true for quantum computing. But I think we it would be remiss of me not to say that there is a wider quantum technologies play. And depending on the nature of the appetite for investment and the capabilities of the company, that wider play in quantum is just as uh, interesting. And that is, you know, if I would characterize it, I'd characterize it the way that we have it now from the commission uh, from Europe, which is you have quantum communications as a pillar you have, um, and which quantum communications is this future quantum network. So imagine not just connecting um, uh, everyone to each other in a cryptographically secure mechanism from a physical perspective, using things like quantum key distribution, but also post-quantum crypto. Um, and then also uh, linking, oh, sorry. Yeah. Is that a new version of the internet? It's the quantum internet we're yeah. talking about. This is the yeah. physical, the new yeah. physical layer that is like an industrial IoT on a quantum ledger, for back, for lack of other words. It's essentially yeah. communicating using quantum encryption. Yes, but it would be uh, like a broadband service. So it would right. be so right. it's transmission oriented, but then fully secured. So you have like an informationally and a mathematically secure option. So you both have the physical security uh, by this actual fiber network, really, because that's in essence what it is. It's a fiber so in pres- uh, my presumption there is this is where the telcos hope to be playing, right? Not just the telcos. Uh, so it should be clear that eventually like a fully quantum internet will also require quantum computers to be connected over this quantum internet. So quantum communications is not just for the preservation of current communications in all its, you know, multiple states, but also for a quantum uh, computing network as well. So you've got this fully quantum uh, backbone, so uh, communications, computation. And then you have uh, sensing and metrology mm-hmm. as well. And, um, uh, you know, all of these different technologies are going to be supported by this foundational, uh, fundamental engineering efforts. And that's going to be enormous. Let's just say, though, like um, when we talk about computing, you know, and you talked about 
Google, and Microsoft, I want to be clear that they're not just working on the physical quantum computer. They're also working on, you know, noisy intermediate state quantum, and they're also working on quantum simulation. So um, they also have, and that's another pillar, that's the fourth and final pillar. So if you take a look at it, there's all of these different efforts. And again, depending on the company, their investment uh, appetite and their like capacity inside, it depends where they uh, think that they will actually make a play. The reason, this is great context, the, the reason I brought this up is, uh, you know, you come from the security space and I was just sort of curious, would you categorize the current uh, cybersecurity companies as a kind of in my third category of like specialty players uh, providing kind of a specialty service into the main players? Or is it going to be, have to be fully integrated in that if you are an IBM, Google, or, or you know, any of these others, uh, maybe there will be a, a, you know, an Asian player in there as well that has this full-fledged solution or indeed, you know, on, on this uh, communication layer, will they have to have such an integrated security function that you will essentially, you can't just be their, uh, you know, a provider, you, you have to actually be fully owned by one of those players. How do you see that playing out long-term? I, I actually don't know. I think you can do both. I think those options are definitely there. But what you do see is the companies that have made the investment and have the mindset quantum computing is coming have also taken the necessary risk mitigation, have also invested in, I mean, take a look at Microsoft for a moment. They have all of these global uh, labs. They uh, are working heavily also on the post-quantum side. They're incredibly involved in the NIST candidate selection for algorithms. So. I don't see any company saying we'll do if we if they go towards the push of computing, they're also doing the necessary risk mitigation from their own capability to make sure they're ready for it if someone else would get there first. Hmm. So NIST's quantum algorithm zoo has over 60 types of algorithms. Now that sounds complicated, 60 algorithms, quantum algorithms, but I mean, first off, what is the relevance of having a discussion right now in 2020 about algorithms when presumably wouldn't many of them change? Or is the game actually a little bit like in cryptography where the, the main algorithms are going to be known and we're kind of providing services on top of them, which is a different game? I'm just trying to understand how the fight will be played. Well, so um, I, I think different players will play it differently based on, again, here, you know, how inclined they are to start early. I encourage everyone to start early simply because we've already talked about this, Tron, just a few minutes ago. Our ability to change sucks. You know, we need to acknowledge that right away and saying the earlier we understand our own uh current ist, you know, how are we in the game, the better we are to be able to accommodate to a soul situation. So right. the first and foremost thing that I encourage companies to do to understand their current cryptographic landscape. So where do you use your crypto? How do you manage your crypto? Is someone else doing it for you? Do you do it yourself? How have you set that up? Which algorithms are you using? How large are those algorithms in terms of key length? You know, so first getting that kind of inventorization done of your cryptographic assets and understanding your own position is really important. Then if you have done that, it's easier to think about where the opportunities are for an eventual transition or an intermediary like play. Um, and, you know, there are different 
there's a lot of algorithms in the zoo because there's a lot of different things that we use algorithms for. So like, for example, TLS, uh, we, we um, use this all over the internet all the time. So we will have a different set of algorithms for that than we will like for signing or so I, I think it's important for us to appreciate and try out which algorithms that are recommended by NIST will work best for us in our own capacity and what the impact is in terms of our ability to do something called crypto agility. Can we actually take the current algorithm now and swap it with a post-quantum one? Maybe we can't. Um, and, you know, every algorithm needs a certain amount of bake time until we consider it good enough. And when I say that, that means that nobody else can break it with a mathematical attack or something else. And even when we've got that bake time that we trust the algorithm, there's always historically been a whole bunch of implementation screw ups. It's got the best algorithm on earth. We bake it into a device and boom, you know, it still winds up not working because we have a side channel attack because they didn't read the actual specification well enough and the vendor just screwed up. You know, so there's all kinds of stuff. And I'd rather start early, fail early, and then we have a decent chance of getting there on time. Mm. Jaya, you are clearly on the algorithm side of this problem. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know if it would be a fair question to ask you some of the more basic challenges that quantum is facing at the moment. Uh, I mean, I just superficially know that error correction seems to be a very, very big one right now. And, you know, if we had even one error corrected qubit that lasted more than, you know, a nanosecond, we would be in a good shape. So, So that's one. But there's also very, like, seems very simple challenges like cabling and how do you actually create these refrigerators because this thing is going to have to currently, I think like 98% of these projects are using qubits that are operating at minus 273 Celsius working temperature. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know uh, to what extent these approaches that are trying to go, uh, you know, above that and, uh, you know, are also perhaps mm -hmm. going to come into play. But what are some of the challenges you see because I think this is what the public has noticed, right? Hey, you know, all these refrigerators, I can't take them seriously. I mean, talk to me next decade when you yeah. figure this one out. I mean, how can, a, how can a thing inside of a fridge change the world? It sounds a little bit crude to say it that way, but honestly, you know, I, I know what it takes to make a fridge. So you're going to have a computer inside of a fridge and it's not even error free. How long is this going to take and what are the actual challenges beyond these algorithms? Um, well, you know, there's multiple challenges and the error correction or decoherence one is a big one. It's not trivial. Um, that being said, we have uh, tried to set up um, underneath the strategic advisory board of the European Commission, the actual KPI. So it's not about, you know, having one error correcting qubit, uh, actually. Um, you know, initially we wanted to have way, way more. So in terms of uh, qubits uh, for quantum computing, um, we want high fidelity quantum computers for at least 1,000 physical qubits um, in the next couple and of years. How far are we from that today? Because uh, I know that there were some announcements around, uh, well, there's this IBM 
Google fight again. You know, they were talking about going from 32 to 30 to 60 or something, right? That, that's the landscape we're it's in right now, right? A couple of years. It's really that right. because people don't want to miss their mark. And whenever there's a KPI out there, there's this tension between will we achieve it? So should we put it out there? But is it ambitious enough? Because otherwise everyone else will do it as well. So there, it's a bit of a tension because you don't want to give yourself a KPI that you can't achieve. But at the same time, that KPI, once you've said it out loud, somebody else is going to try to achieve it too. I think IBM has uh, coined it. They they wanted to create their own Morse's law, so they have called it Gambetta's law, which is this doubling of qubits every year. Do, do, is that realistic? The do, so uh, let, let's do the math again. I mean, doubling every year. So if we're thirty yeah. to sixty this year, yeah, yeah. we're looking at one twenty, and then yeah. I mean, it's that's that's it's not exactly Morse's law, but it's fast, and yeah. and the qubits are a little. Perhaps more more interesting than uh, than Morse's law, anyway. So and again, decoherence uh, is a problem. So as you have more qubits, you've also increased the amount of noise and potential for decoherence as well. So I mean, the whole idea of doing this is fidelity, stabi stability. Uh, that's the name of the game. And I'm not a quantum computing expert at all. Um, I'm just very lucky that I get to talk to a lot of them. And then this is what no, we No, look, uh, and I think you're probably a much better expert than many. And I, But I, I don't want to put you on the spot here because I do know that there are subspecialties within this field. So this was not at all to try to put you on the spot. I'm just, it is very interesting to try to kind of map this market. And I don't think that some of the specialists probably have the least chance of really mapping what kind of a market this is. You are at a very interesting kind of intersection point, honestly, right? Because you, you, the, the application and security layer is just going to be crucial to the mm -hmm. business models, to the survival, to the interest, mm -hmm. to the way that public sector is going to invest in this, right? I mean, isn't that why the EU is, is very concerned? Absolutely. They obviously want to pr protect their data. Yes, of course, but it goes beyond that. I think we've understood that there will be a few technologies, and we've talked about you know these things in Europe, in a European context for a very long time, about the dominance of particular countries in very strategic technology areas. Um, and you know, when it comes to something like quantum, it's just not a game that you can be exempt from playing. This is something that requires us, really to put our money where our mouth is and to actually right. make a drive to lead and not follow and to also be self-sufficient. And this has a lot to do with sovereignty, but it has everything to do with not relying on other countries for your foundational technology for the future. So if we're always going to be reliant from a European standpoint on the U.S. and on China, you know, you're going to get what you got. So we really need to change that conversation and be able to do it ourselves. So, Jaya, that's interesting if you are the EU because that's actually more of a tactical choice for the <laughs> EU. Well, a strategic choice, but I mean, it's actually very possible to do because the EU is is one of the, <laughs> the big three entities in the world right now. If you are a smaller country and you're sort of saying, yeah, you know, the EU, we have some agreements with the EU. If you are, you know, one of my home countries, Norway, that's sort of like slightly on the outside of this or you know, you are a country that's not connected to, to this kind of big alliance. How are you going to fare? And what, I, I guess it's just sort of interesting to think yeah. about, uh, even on the security side, yeah. what is the approach of a, let's say, let's call it a country yeah. that is on the outside of these three big alliances of China, US, EU. How are they going to conceptualize and, and play in this? Will they simply just 
have to be good followers or, or, or are they basically shut out from, from what you were saying is kind of a new layer? So frankly, I've always believed that there is a very big digital divide. Um, and that comes from basis access to the internet, to um, new uh, technology um, for IT and ICT. Look, there's not a lot of high-performance computing estates all over Africa. There aren't. Um, and I really think that this digital divide, uh, that this holds true also for cybersecurity. This is one of the reasons I work where I work, because I think it's unfair that only those that can afford it will have access to cybersecurity. I, I don't want to be in a world where that's the case. So I would rather help everybody else uh, who doesn't have it try to have it access to it as well. This is cybersecurity. But when it comes to quantum, especially at the state that we're currently in, access to quantum computing resources are, are luxury uh, for places that do not have it yet. So if there are already aren't there, it the only play, uh, if you have a finite amount of financial resources, is to look for smart partnerships and to look right. for who you will work with. That is not true when it comes to security after a quantum computer. And again, this is like one of those tiers of evolution. So if you can already get other parts of your cybersecurity in place, and I can tell you uh, that we don't have that in place for even the developing countries, we're not all 100% okay. And you know that from the IOCTA report, that to go right. then a step further and be ready for a quantum computing attack, this is maybe a step too far with considering that digital divide. My yep. biggest advice when I have spoken for Singularity in Africa is just to start now, to at least mm. understand the state of play and understand which smart allegiances make sense. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the use cases of quantum, uh, but from the perspective of, of your field, which is sort of how to, how to secure them once we start crank, uh, you know, cranking on them. And then let's move into sort of quantum security. Uh, and I'd like to, to go through Alice Bob and, and the ex-girlfriend Eve, because I think taking this down a little, uh, and, and sort of, I love the way that you, you're explaining that. And I know that these three names have become a bit of a, of, of kind of they have some fame in, in, in trying to explain what's going on. But let's just for one second talk about quantum application. So you are in cybersecurity. Clearly, there's going to be a massive amount of quantum technology both applied to security and to apply to breaking uh, existing security. That's one of the issues. Drug development would seem to be a, a, a big one. Financial modeling. What are some of the applications you think well, from a security perspective, you are concerned about protecting the first, because presumably not all of these are going to balloon at the same time. And, you know, we haven't talked timelines here, but mm -hmm. you're saying, you know, prepare now. Which applications or which companies operating in what fields should be kind of worried, number one? And, and, uh, and then who, who are kind of, what are the use cases that are coming along a little bit later, but still, you know, not long so long yeah. that people should just relax. Yeah, well, from a worry perspective, you know, it's really about what is it you have to protect and from whom. That's always the foundational part of why worry. Um, so if you have, if you're a state actor and you have access to uh, national state secret-like information, these are the people who I would worry about. If that information's ever been transmitted uh, across the internet, the concern for these types of actors are, you know, store now, 
uh, from a, an enemy who is just going to capture everything and then decrypt it later. So this idea... Are these people even able to do that now? Like if you are a country, if you are the European Commission guarding personality, you know, guarding state mm -hmm. secrets for various countries, uh, mm -hmm. this can be broken now. Well, arguably, everything that we transmit over the internet, if we haven't already encrypted it, is already up for grabs. Because but I mean, with, with quantum encryption, uh, uh, decryption, yeah. are there players, like rogue players, state actors or terrorist networks or individual, uh, you know, crazies, hackers, black hats, who are, you know, this year or in the next three years, potentially able to conduct quantum attacks? No, or, 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 whole, or attacks yeah. sort of like the moment a quantum network comes up, how long will it take these black hat actors to turn around and actually sort of provide that attack? I guess that's the question. Right. So it first depends on do we have a computer that's large enough to conduct the attack? And the question is, when is that going to happen? So right. that's a question that we get asked a lot. And like, it depends on whether you're uh, an optimist or a skeptic here. So the optimist will tell you that within the next 10 years, we will absolutely have a quantum computer that will be able to do this. Absolutely. And then a skeptic will say, no, we'll never have it. We'll have cold fusion before we ever have a quantum computer. So forget mm -hmm. it. So it depends on which part of that, uh, that yeah, line that you sit, uh, that, that you believe, you know, how far that's going to happen. However, um, we sh it's not a trivial thing to capture that volume of traffic. So the only person, there's no rogue actor that can sit and suck up all of that traffic. That's only going to be relevant from the perspective of another nation state and another nation state with significant means. So we're talking about actors like the United States or China or Russia, or but someone with significant means, access to the internet, clear motivation. So if you have all of those things, there is a potential that such an attack of capturing traffic and decrypting it later is possible, but only with all of those things in place. And mm. even then, you know, I, I always think like, is that really like, it depends on what it is you're trying to attack. But um, if you take a, a look at it, we have so many other points of potential vulnerability. Um, sure. So it depends on is that really the so before people go home and start getting terrified about, oh my gosh, you know, I would rather the things that I'm terrified are like healthcare information that we have no idea how to protect. Uh, for a right. long period of time that we want to be secret for a very long period of time, maybe generations. We just don't know how to do that. Not at yeah. all. Yeah. Right. And and the problems related to that information is sometimes people just, uh, you know, losing a, an essential laptop yeah. on a bus that they just happen yeah. to be on, you know, visiting the grandmother. And, and you know, these kinds of very simple, simple things, you know, with uh, unencrypted. Yeah. Far more likely but, than I, I agree. I agree. But if we are to just even just look at the typology of these potential futuristic quantum attacks, what are what are some of the the types of quantum attacks that one can envision or that the literature has started to envision? And how do they differ from the typology of, of regular cybersecurity attacks, which also now have their own boxes to, to put them in. You mentioned ransomware. Uh, you told me uh, as we were prepping some timing attacks. What, what is that all about? Well, I th so before we say quantum attacks, I mean, the one real attack with a quantum computer is decrypting encrypted information. That's what we're worried about. Yeah. But yeah, there That's are number one. That's not, that's really the only one. Um, and it's pretty big because that's about information security 
you know, at its at its foundational layer when we talk about encrypted stuff. So, but when we're worried about other types of cybersecurity attacks, there's numerous ones. And when we look at attacks that can be waged against, for example, systems that are tr- trying to provide some form of quantum secrecy, you've got, I think, pretty much two types of attacks and putting it really in a very high level bucket. And the first is like physical attacks. Like, for example, there were, I told you about the quantum internet. Um, and in order to do that, you set up, um, you can set up quantum key distribution connections between different points. It's one way to do it. There will be other ways in the future when we have different topologies, but one way is just a point-to-point link with QKD. One of the attacks against the QKD systems was to shine a really bright laser onto one side of the point that was connected to the other point. And when shining that really bright laser, you could read the way that the physical... um, uh, filters were set up so that you could then figure out how to set it up on the other side. So Eve would then be able to intercept the connection and actually collect the information. And Right. So that- let's go to Alice, Bob, and, and, and Eve. I mean, the idea here is there's two people or systems, Alice and Bob, and they want to communicate. But then there's this rogue actor, Eve, who may, you know, for the purposes of the story, could be an ex-girlfriend. What is the real issue there? Uh, Because presumably, if you set up the communication between Alice and Bob, isn't the whole point that if you, in a post sort of quantum uh, world, the moment you have set that up, uh, why would there be a way that this Eve could, could, so you've explained one way. Mm -hmm. Um, Photon number splitting was something I came across. I mean, there are all of these things that people have concocted that could be done to for Eve to somehow, I don't know, either eavesdrop on the conversation mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. or actually pretend she is Alice for a while and then just send the communication over to Alice when she's done. I mean, yeah. that sounds crazy to me. Well, so there's a couple of fundamental principles underneath all of this, but like, let's just make it super, super simple. So Alice has a computer and a connection. That connection is a fiber connection. So does Bob, okay? And Alice and Bob want to talk to each other. Somewhere that fiber connection is going between Alice and Bob. And whether they're in two different rooms or, you know, this fiber connection is going underneath the ground, it doesn't really matter. What the point is, is that Eve has somehow, along the path of that collection, managed to get access And whether she takes a cable, and literally there are different types of attacks, if you like bend a cable, bend the cable, you can somehow get the information that's bouncing off of the cable. There's a sort of interference that you're creating, but you can actually read off of the photons that are being emitted through the cable. That's one thing. That's one attack. The other attack is that, you know, between Alice and Bob, there are these two QKD machines. And again, if Eve is somehow on that physical connection, she can shine a light on the other end of that fiber and read Alice's or Bob's settings about how they set up their encryption device and then potentially have access to information that she shouldn't have access to, in which case could potentially launch another attack. So there are indeed all different types of attacks to these that are physical, but there's also, and I want to be very clear, it's not just physical attacks. There's the potential for all types of mathematical attacks. Just because we have a good algorithm 
doesn't mean we won't find a way to weaken it in the future. And history is littered with examples of algorithms that have been either deliberately weakened or found to be accidentally flawed. And there's a new mathematical attack that's launched against them later. And, you know, like, and I say history is littered because like one of the best examples of this was um, when we had Enigma and the Enigma machines during World War II were uh, found uh, by the British and then given to the, all the allies to like, here you go, use the Enigma. Never mind that we had a guy in the UK, uh, Alan Turing, that already broke into the Enigma, figured out exactly how they work. But you know what? This is really good crypto, everybody. Go ahead and use it. And meanwhile, the GCHQ could read everybody else's communications. What are the good guys helping us in this landscape? So are there quantum security startups right now that are kind of native quantum and have security as their main thing? Or are we looking at you know companies like yours uh, to kind of morph into also just naturally sort of taking on this challenge as, as part of uh, any challenge? No, there are definitely uh, companies that are out there that have started up. I'm thinking of two right now in the two examples that I gave you. Um, in Europe, we have ID Quantique, uh, which is a Swiss company that, you know, when they first started up, I met one of their founders, Gregoire Ribaudy, when he was starting up literally at the University of Geneva. But this is, you know, almost two decades ago. And then uh, you have Isara in Canada that's really looking at that algorithmic side over those post-quantum algorithms and trying to figure out how to uh, secure businesses with that. So you have a ton, like a mushrooms of um, uh, new companies that are rising every day. And I sometimes worry that not all of them are as good as the two that I just mentioned. And it leaves an entire um, plethora of potential for uh, people to be exploited simply because, you know, it sounds good and it has quantum in the name. So maybe they're doing something. So, well, that's a big problem with any emerging and advanced technology, isn't it? Who, who, who are you going to trust? Because, you know, it's not enough to just say, well, you know, we are a bunch of PhDs and we do good work, right? There's a whole other problem, Jia, which is there are rogue actors who also have PhDs and credentials, right? And could actually set up these mm -hmm. things as bona fide mm -hmm. security companies. Maybe they have them already. And could yeah. make you know make their way into. I mean, I'm not trying to be difficult here, but yeah, you know, you don't have to have a very twisted mind to sort of think that there are you know there are ways to to really start thinking about manipulating this in a big way because the stakes uh, seem pretty enormous to me. Is that right? No, this is absolutely uh, a legitimate thing. There are companies that specialize in security and there are companies that have, uh, again, historically, I don't want to name them, but um, have historically had enormously public and prominent failures with cryptography. Uh, so, and the question is, to which extent have they either been influenced or have they been concocted from some intelligence agency somewhere? Jaya, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I mean, you know, I, when you when I know that you are in these conversations, uh, I, I feel sort of slightly relaxed because you seem like a very measured and extraordinarily smart person, which I would do, and with good ethics. Like those three things seem seem to be good. Good, you know, you've got those going for you. In the conversations with the European Commission, are you? Are you um, calmed 
by the approaches that are taken? Or are you sort of like, yes, it's good, but is it good enough? Like, do you think that, just to take one jurisdiction, do you think the EU has started to take this with the appropriate care that it needs? I think the EU is certainly uh, blessed by the fact that we have some brilliant, brilliant scientists. And I genuinely believe that the commission is trying to do everything to make sure that we have and retain that advantage over every other country uh, and that we keep this, this gift for Europe. Um, my biggest concern is, as economics tend to play, um, can we do this over time? And that has nothing to do with the best intentions and all of the good work sure. that we've done so far. I think that's right. only something that we can prove when we hold on to that IP and we prove that this is a benefit for all of Europe instead of you know relinquishing it to a company uh, in the United States or in China or wherever. Um, I don't know if you spend any time doing these comparisons, but we've talked a little bit about healthcare and other things. To what, to what extent is this, in your mind, kind of the problem of, let's call it the next decade, or maybe not this decade? Or, or you know, like to, how big of an emphasis is this entire space, quantum, and its security, going to get over other technologies as we sort of move into a relevance sphere, like whenever this becomes truly real, mm -hmm. how dominant is this going to become? Is this kind of actually the new internet, the new gold, or is it just a layer after all, on top of which we do very limited things like we calculate the weather, we do some advanced stuff that AI is currently doing, but, you know, uh, a factor of a thousand faster and better. But, you know, really in daily life, okay, yeah, a little bit more accurate weather, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, some better financial algorithms so that some people uh, who already were earning a lot of money will earn more money. Or, or am I completely missing a point here? This is going to just really reshape everything that we do. Trond, I, I have to say that I have, I'm a bit dualistic here. Like on the one hand, uh, and I have to be honest, the reason I'm that way is because I don't know for sure. Because on the one hand, some of the scientific challenges that are there are so fundamental. They're so incredibly interesting. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that having a quantum computer allows us to answer those fundamental cha challenges in science. It could allow us to figure out you know, how to not just make it to Mars, but to actually go further in terms of space exploration. It could help us figure out some of our climate problems. It, you know, it already is working towards that effect. It could really help us understand so many things so much better. I feel like that is a profound impact in and of itself. That being said, I also feel like we have no idea you know, we really don't know because when the internet came out, we never thought that, or I never thought that I would have a daughter who would use it to be on TikTok the entire day. No, I mean, the application you know layer is just not pre, uh, you know, you can't yeah. really envision. No. And uh, also the speeds at which we, I, I was a nine-year-old with a Commodore 64 who then was super happy when I had a CompuServe account, you know, with a modem. And then like, I, I just... I cannot comprehend some of the speeds that we're having now, the complete depletion of IPv4 addresses, the lack of adoption of IPv6, even after running out of those things a while ago. Like there's so many things that are happening that I simply feel like we have no idea if this is the thing that it brings us 
And I only see that as a super positive, happy thing, really, really optimistic. I have no idea what the countervailing effect of that could be on our society, mm. on our lives, on on every future application of a quantum computer. Let me ask you this. We haven't talked about this topic at all, and I'm not going to sort of make it a massive talk, topic, but there's a, there's a big discussion about AI and AGI, you know, general uh, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence. Do you... Do you see these two debates, the quantum debate and the AI debate, becoming more and more intermingled? And, you know, is the promise of the one interlinked with the other or are they kind of independent tracks in the other in the, in the sense that whether we have a problem or, a, or an opportunity with AI is sort of independent of whether we get these qubits to to kind of be reined in like the wild horses they are, you know, and, and, and you know, be tamed and domesticated? which sort of is like my metaphor for this. Yeah. We're taming these qubits, uh, but if we don't tame them, you know, will the AI uh, train kind of just still go on and have its own own challenges or or are they so intertwined that, you know, essentially AI has reached its, its, uh, uh, you know, zenith. I don't think so. No, it has not. I, I don't want to believe that, and I don't think that that's the case. So I don't think it's reached its zenith. And I think that quantum computing could offer a potential catalyzing effect for a lot of the things that we want to realize with AGI. And AGI, you know, if you look at companies like DeepMind, it's still, as far as I know, I mean, they haven't released it publicly, it's still part of their dream and not part of their reality. So if quantum acts as a catalyst to help achieve that, I would only laud it. Um, we've talked about a lot of things that I don't pretend to understand even after this conversation, but I love to consider them and ponder them. When you are tracking the quantum field, some of which is truly your field, uh, other things are associated. And you said, you know, you're, you know, eating at the table with experts, uh, you know, in these other parts of the quantum chain where, you know, at least that's not your day-to-day business. Mm -hmm. How do you stay up to date. I mean, clearly you have now access to some networks that not everyone has, but how does one stay up to date meaningfully so that one can think about investing in quantum or if you're a CEO of a big company, start figuring out how to stay smart, train your executives on it, uh, perhaps start investing and building technology on it. What is the best way to engage? I think that there's a few opportunities now. There are also quantum uh, conferences. So there is Inside Quantum Tech. Um, there is a EU quantum conference um, that was set up. There, there's a whole bunch of very good quantum conferences. If you would just Google on that, I think that that's a really easy, uh, very low threshold way uh, to figure out. And there's business, even for the Etsy conference on post-quantum cryptography, there's an executive track and a technical track. So they've made it as approachable as possible for people to understand what's at risk, what are the possible solutions, and what's best for you. Yeah, Etsy, the European Standards Organization. Yep, got it. Um, any bloggers and stuff apart from yourself that uh, that got this down? 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of Twitter accounts, um, and yeah. you can also follow the, um, European flagship, which talks about all of those pillars. So, uh, that's always a good resource. And there's a lot there because part of it is making everything around quantum to be part of the general literacy, just like we were trying to increase the general public's literacy around AI. We're trying to do the same thing for quantum. So when the time is there, we will be able to already have a, quantum enabled workforce, you know, like a workforce that understands what's uh, going on and how they can actually benefit from it and work in the field. Hmm. Well, uh, Jay, I, I thank you so much and I feel uh, slightly more informed, but it, it strikes me that this may not be the last discussion on quantum security. We are entering interesting times and um, I hope that we can stay in touch on that. I'd love to. All right. You have just listened to episode 69 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronar Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of quantum security. Our guest was Jaya Balu, Chief Information Security Officer at Avast Software. In this conversation, we talk about why it is so hard to eradicate cybersecurity challenges. We discuss the Internet Organized Crime Threat Assessment, IOCTA, and we discuss the threats we are ready for and know about versus the threats we don't know about and are not ready for. We talk about the quantum market players, the challenges and the applications. What cha quantum security challenges do you worry about in the next decade? Jaya uses the story of Alice Bob and the ex-girlfriend Eve to illustrate quantum security and how to teach quantum computing to a next generation of engineers. My takeaway is that quantum security is just around the corner, because if it isn't, we are all in trouble. Quantum computing has gone from being a theoretical possibility to a highly experimental niche application among a few computer firms, to a significant emerging government concern and a future business opportunity for those with a lot of data to crunch fast. Most of us don't need to worry about it in this decade, but doing so is a bit like not thinking about retirement in your 20s. It isn't necessary, but it is smart to do. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 13, Cybersecurity, a review of the RSA Asia Pacific and Japan 2020 virtual event, episode 30 on artificial general intelligence, episode 51 on the AI for learning, episode 16 on perception AI, episode 49 on living the future of work, episode 35 on augmented reality, episode 47 on how to invest in sci-fi tech, or episode 54 on the future of AR, and episode 31 on robotics. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.